Jim, it is such a pleasure to have you on. You're one of those rare people who seem, at least to me, to reject the artificial boundaries we impose between different subjects and who delves into ideas and tries to understand ideas beyond what they even specialize in. Your podcast is a great example of that. And you're also one of the most curious individuals I've come across. And I really appreciate this chance to speak with you today. Well, thank you for having me. I thought it'd be fun to start with AI. You are executive chair of the board of directors at Stability AI, which your company, O'Shaughnessy Ventures, invested in. I think it's been almost a year now since that investment, exactly? Yep, yep. We're coming up on a year. Yeah, time flies. And in AI time, uh, that year equals, oh, maybe 20 years of normal human time. <laughs> Tell us about why you made that investment and what are some unexpected things you've learned to be on the board this past year? So I made the investment. I've been uh, interested in machine learning and AI for a long time because I saw it as sort of the next frontier for quantitative uh, uh, researchers in terms of uh, investing. Uh, but as I went down that rabbit hole, and boy, it is a deep rabbit hole, uh, I found I was even more excited by many of the other applications and use cases for AI, from uh, medical discovery to tutoring children and adults one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, the list is, is quite extensive. Um, and when I had the opportunity to see what Stability was doing, uh, particularly with the stable diffusion model that they released with the weights. That's very important. Uh, prior to that, um, no one had open sourced an entire generative AI model uh, with weights. Um, and the significance of that is it gives people who love to tinker the ability to actually use those models in ways that they couldn't previously because they needed access to the weights. And so uh, what we thought would happen is uh, what happened by uh, 10x. We thought that very, very creative people would use the model to generate all kinds of interesting innovations and uh, new uses of the models that you know hadn't even been thought of. And, and that is exactly what happened uh, last summer, right around this time. Um, and, and so I guess uh, asking what I've learned. So I, I personally believe that AI has the potential to be uh, as significant uh, an innovation as Gutenberg's printing press. I think it will give us the opportunity to unlock and extend human creativity. Um, like really no tools that we've uh, generated in the past. Why would I invest in stability as opposed to others? I passionately believe that AI is such a powerful technology that everyone should have access to it. Um, and closed AI, uh, i.e. where it is controlled and the weights are not given, uh, seems to me to be have the potential to grow into a panopticon, which is sort of an all-seeing eye. If you remember, I, I don't know if you're a fan of uh, Lord of the Rings, but Sauron with his all-seeing eye. And I just didn't want, I have five grandchildren, and I didn't want them to grow up in that kind of world. I wanted them to grow up in a world where these powerful tools would be available to everyone. And that 
everyone, despite what their particular skill set is in thinking or doing, should have access to the tools. I, I strongly believe that open source, for example, Linux runs the web and it's open source. And the reason for that is because essentially um, it's very difficult for a very small group of people who might think in a similar fashion to come up with the kinds of kind of quantum leap improvements that you can come up with if you have cognitive diversity in the coders working on the project. So Linux won for that reason. I think open source AI will win for that reason. So that's why I was particularly uh, attracted to Stability AI as it is the uh, truly open source uh, company. You've mentioned in various places that you're a big fan of David Deutsch, same here. What are some of the ideas perhaps he's changed your mind about? And can you give examples of times when you've applied the worldview presented in Deutsch's books uh, in your professional or personal life? Well, yes. Um, and actually, I kind of trained myself to think that way probabilistically as opposed to deterministically uh, a long time ago. So I think one of the reasons why I loved uh, Deutsch's books so much was he really builds an incredible foundation for why we should pursue knowledge the way he advocates. One of the things that Deutsch really gets right that seems to be a kink in human OS is we tend to have the belief that we know everything already. And what Deutsch does so elegantly and, and beautifully is point out time and time and time again that we don't know everything. In fact, we probably know very little. I think Edison said something like, we don't know one-tenth percent of anything. And, and the, this mindset that we can't possibly know what our menu of options will be in the future because we don't know what innovations and what uh, new inventions will be around then. He's got a great line in the beginning of Infinity that that says, what were um, physicists uh, talking about um, in, in terms of Einstein's theory of relativity uh, or quantum mechanics in 1900? And what were their thoughts on the Internet? And, and of course, he goes on <laughs> to say they weren't saying anything about Einstein and uh, quantum mechanics or the Internet because none of them had really been invented yet or just better way to put it, discovered yet. Um, and and so I think that Deutsch is just incredibly good at building up a real steel man case for the fact that we we're universal explainers and connectors, humans. And and maybe there are others in the universe. I'm agnostic on that. I'd love it if there were, but so far we haven't really found them. And so it's kind of up to us to push innovation and discovery forward. And I also love his uh, take on what I call pragmatic optimism. Um, basically, a pessimistic mindset is driven by what's known as the precautionary principle. And the precautionary principle is don't do it in a new way because that could be bad. We don't know. So let's just stick with the tried and true. I'm not saying that you shouldn't stick with the tried and true in certain endeavors, I think it can be quite intelligent to do so. But I, I think that the precautionary principle when pushed too far leads to stasis 
and death. Literally, you know, Deutsch has a great take on Marcus Aurelius, somebody who's kind of a hero of mine, the Stoic emperor of Rome, saying that, you know, li literally had he embraced a different point of view, i.e. that of the, we can go further, we can go farther, we can push the boundaries of our understanding and our invention and innovation. Um, he, he, you know, Rome might have done a lot better. <laughs> and and so the idea that um what we really want to do is say knowledge is a ever-growing thing and it leads to new discoveries it leads to innovations now can some of those things be dangerous yeah absolutely like fire for example fire is responsible for the prefrontal cortex that we humans have today because it wasn't really uh, fully formed until we started cooking our food, fire, right? Now, is fire the best thing in the world? Yeah, if you want to stay warm and you want to cook your food and you want to do those things. How about, is it dangerous? Hell yeah. That's why we didn't ban fire. We created fire departments, fire alarms, fire men and women, <laughs> fire exits, etc. So the idea is that people, the precautionary principle often leads to a very conservative mindset, which says no, no to new innovation, no to new ways of thinking, no to all of those things. And unfortunately, human history is littered with the precautionary principle winning, where, you know, during the Renaissance in Florence, a little known uh, fact is there was a counter-reformation uh, there was a priest, I can't recall his name, but he went to Florence and like literally burned many of the beautiful works of art and treatises and all of these things because this idea that it was wrong and harmful. And so we have a predilection to seek out safety and and we we conflate safe with what has been. Not necessarily true at all. For example, as Deutsch elegantly points out in his book, uh, the world before we humans started changing it for the better was an incredibly dangerous place for human beings, uh, a very hostile environment. And if you look at everything we have today, I mean, we, we, we you're in India and I'm in uh, the United States and here we are having a great conversation, right? The, the world prior to all of our innovations was you know very very dangerous so i believe that yes his framework is just sort of the best one i've found for explaining why we need to change the way we think about things and why we should take his path as opposed to the path of the doomers yeah you pointed out so many things there but i'd just like to kind of summarize and point out the key things that you mentioned so nature obviously is an incredibly hostile place right we think that um some people like to romanticize nature putting it like above humans and like having an inherent goodness in its own right but really when you see just examples of floods tsunamis and earthquakes right that's all natural and that is natural and uh, some people argue that that is a blessing and uh but I, I like to think that um, that is just another problem to be solved. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that uh, and all the anti-aging and longevity research happening about that. Maybe you could talk about that. But 
basically nature is a hostile place. You talked about the growth of knowledge being inherently unpredictable. You cannot predict the growth of knowledge because if you could predict it, you would already have it, which is a contradiction. And uh, yeah, uh, it's really great to see you advocating uh, the book and so many podcasts I've listened to you, uh, of yours. And um, it, it's just had the same impact on me. It's like profound, the deepest, most profound book I've ever read. So um, it's great that you mentioned it as well. I think it's great that you've already read it at your age. I, I think, uh, you know, if you can convert just a couple of your friends <laughs> that we're making, we're, we're making uh, good progress. Um, I think that one of the other things is I was listening to you summarize, we, we tend to be label thinkers, we humans. And, and once you slap a label on something, I can't remember whether it was uh, Wittgenstein, I think it was Wittgenstein, uh, or Kierkegaard, I'm not sure, but uh, it was a great line. When you label me, you negate me. And and what that really means is when you label, when you slap a label on something, you think you figured it out, right? And and it makes you. Joshua Warren said it, it. It's a big mistake to understand new things too quickly, because most of the time we have not understood them. A great example is, you know, kind of every new innovation, how did it get used? It got used by what they knew from the past. So, for example, when movies were invented, what did they make movies of? Plays. <laughs> because, you know, that's what they knew. When radio was invented, you know, Edison was kind of like, well, what are we going to listen to? And he suggested, well, I think we should just have sermons all day long. <laughs> because, you know, that was what yeah, he was used to. And, and so I think that being uh, or trying one's best to avoid being a label thinker is very, very beneficial to your thought process. Because when you, when you understand that we, you know, very, very few things in the world are deterministic in terms of zero, one, yes, no, black, white, up, down, right? That's a very Aristotelian viewpoint and very deterministic. And, and the world, it seems to me, is mostly maybe. Um, and so some people get very, very um, uncomfortable thinking like that. We, we humans really have a desire for what ultimately is the illusion of certainty. People who are certain about things, what, what's one thing you can say about them? Well, they've stopped thinking about that thing because they're certain. And if they believe that their worldview or their reality tunnel or their mental model encompasses the answer to every particular question they might have on that issue, they're going to stop thinking about it, and then they're going to start trying to prove it. And a lot of this happens unconsciously, right? I wrote a piece uh, called The Thinker and the Prover based on the work of uh, a, psycho a psychologist named Orr that was made popular by Robert Anton Wilson, another author I'm a big fan of. Um, and it's essentially what we do is we default to thinking we know, and then a process happens in our brain that we're often not even aware of. We seek out just unconsciously only things that confirm what we think we know. Right. And we often close our mind off to things that don't confirm it, that uh, 
put it uh, open to question. And so I think that the the longer you're able to keep your mind in thinking mode, as opposed to, I wonder if I'm wrong about this. I wonder if I need to update this particular uh, viewpoint of mine. Um, the better, because you'll be you'll you'll force yourself to remain open-minded to alternative suggestions that may in fact even negate your particular uh, shorthand on that mental model. Um, so I think that it's not a natural way for us to think though. And it's very, very uh, challenging to train yourself to think that way. Because when you start doing it, it feels very unnatural, right? Because we tend to do another thing, and that is we tend to emotionally take what we believe and make it part of our personality. And boy, oh boy, if you make something part of your personality and somebody challenges that thing, you perceive it as a direct attack on you as a person. That's why on social media, you see, I'll die on that hill. I'll die on that hill. I'll die on that hill. And, you know, I always, or not always, but I often put up the response what U.S. General during World War II, General George S. Patton said. And he goes, no, 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 no. What you want to do is you want to make the other poor dumb bastard die on his hill. <laughs> so I think that uh, it, it's a challenging way, but it, it's an incredibly beneficial way if you can train yourself to think more probabilistically. Okay. I think I might have a bit of quibble by you using the word probabilistically in, in that sense. Could you expand on that? Um, what's your quibble? Um, since we can't be certain of stuff, like certain of knowledge, how can you be certain of what probability you're assigning to a particular thing? So uh, what do you mean uh, thinking probabilistically? Um, Good, good uh, uh, highlight, very nuanced for one so young. Um, the idea of probabilities is, is pretty simple. Um, you can establish them based on a base rate of outcomes. So my prior life was in quantitative asset management. And my friend Annie Duke, who's written several books about decision-making, calls people who what I would term a deterministic frame of mind. Um, they look at an outcome from a single event, right? And and they judge the efficacy of their bet, if you will, based on the outcome of that particular event, right? So if the outcome is good, they say the reasoning was good. If the outcome was bad, they say the reasoning or the uh, reason they took that bet was bad. I think that's exactly wrong. When you when you try to take a snapshot, right, as opposed to a video, you're gonna you're gonna see very different things, right? If if we take a snapshot today, and let's just use the market here. Let's say the market goes down a thousand points on the Dow and you know 50 points on the SP 500 today. If we're if we're gonna look at a snapshot and somebody who's hyperbolic discounting and like they believe that that gives them all the information they need, what are they gonna do? They're going to sell everything that they own, right? What you need is the fullness of time to establish a base rate for outcomes. So probabilistically, you can base some of your future decisions based on what's the base rate for of success for that particular approach to investing, right? So 
let's take a real simple one. We think you should buy stocks with the, the best shareholder yield, which is mm -hmm. dividend yield plus buyback uh, yield. Okay, so we have long data streams on how efficacious that is. Does it work always? No. Does it work 70% of all rolling five-year periods? I'm pulling that particular one out of just the air right here. Uh, but what you want to do is bet on those th that directionally look like they've uh, achieved success over long periods of time. The same can be thought of in other endeavors, right? So one of the other things in a probabilistic mindset is, yeah, you, you're always adjusting. You have to have an agile approach to a particular uh, base rate or system that you are using to make your predictions, right? So how, what if you're uh, gauging the probabilities wrong? Well, the outcomes are going to teach you that, right? So if, if you say, ooh, I think the probabilities of X are above 90%, and you bet on that, and you're wrong, and then you say that again, I think those probabilities are 90%, you bet you're wrong, and ad infinitum, at some point, you're going to look and say, you know, I think I might have the wrong probability assigned to that particular outcome. I think that all of the evidence, right, is saying I'm assigning probabilities really vastly wrong. And what I need to do is I need to update my uh, mental model here. And maybe I should do that by looking at the evidence presented to me from all of these outcomes. So that's what I mean. And again, that what's interesting about this is we all think different things when we attach words to them, right? So mm -hmm. deterministic, probabilistic, and you think one thing, and, and maybe I think another thing, and maybe we're close. Maybe there's a disconnect. And that's why discussing it like this, yeah. right, is a way to get clarity. So it also leads to the uh, observation that there are no dumb questions, right? What you want to do is you always want to say, well, what do you, what do you really mean? And can you drill down on that a little bit for me because I don't quite understand. And, and that seems to be another part or kink in our human OS, right? Where, whereas we think that I think, for example, intuitively, if I'm using just the shrink-wrapped human OS that I was born with, I, I'm going to assume that you know exactly what I mean. You don't know exactly what I mean any more than I know exactly what you mean. And that's one of the primary problems of communication. We think that we've been clear. Often we've been not only not clear, we've been opaque. Yeah, I think Karl Popper said something along the lines of, you can't speak in a way so that the other person does not misunderstand you. And uh, again, through discussion and through error correction, we make progress and we can understand each other better and we can just make knowledge grow, which is um, I know something very passionate about and which something I want to lead in the conversation next to is, the education, the education system, which is completely the opposite of that. And it's obsolete, in, at least in my eye. I find it really ironic how we are trying to create computers that can think for themselves, namely AGI. And I think we both know that's not plausible anytime soon. But at the same time, we're sending kids, wanting them to follow, wanting them explicitly to follow instructions and kind of making them learn how to be a thoughtless machine, to put it bluntly. So I'm curious about your thoughts on education and schooling. You've also invested in Synthesis School. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that investment as well. Sure. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. 
the uh, again back to Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, I highly recommend his works. He he died uh, uh, in in the early part of the 21st century, but this was a guy 50 years ahead of his time, in my opinion. What um, are some of his you recommend? Uh, I I would start with uh, quantum psychology and Prometheus Rising. Those are two of the most accessible of his works. Um, but I was going to quote him. He's, his quote is, uh, what the current education system uh, seeks to do is to instill a correct answer machine in people's brains, i.e. there is only one correct answer. And that's whatever your dogma or your philosophy or your particular society believes. And of course, that is incredibly destructive to thought and to actual true learning. So I think if you look at the history, particularly in the United States of education and in Western industrialized countries, uh, a lot of it is still being driven by what the industrialists of the early 20th century and late 19th century wanted. They wanted docile people who could sit in a room eight hours but and do what they're told. And one of the things that uh, we uh, want to see happen is the exact opposite of that. We shouldn't teach people what to think. We should teach them how to think. And you mentioned synthesis school. That's basically their mission. Their mission is to teach uh, kids how to solve a problem. And what they do in synthesis school, and it, you can uh, you can see uh, demonstrations of it online, of course, and get your kids involved, is they they don't present. Here is the answer. Now memorize it. Right. What they do is they present a problem. Um, that's fun and interesting, and they invite the kids to solve that particular problem, and they do so through collaboration, they do so through trial and error, all of kind of like the scientific method, if you think about it, right? What's my hypothesis? Let's test my hypothesis. Is it wrong or is it right? That type of thinking, I think, is going to be absolutely critical into the world that we're going into. Right, we now have these tools. We were talking about AI earlier. AI is an incredibly powerful tool, and in the hands of people who know how how to think as opposed to what to think, it's going to be an amazing lever to be able to come up with new innovations and new discoveries. So, I think that um, we we we've essentially gotten it exactly backwards. And so one of our underlying themes and the thesis that we're following is that we've got to invest heavily in these new ways of helping people learn how to think, learn how to solve problems. And uh, synthesis is a great example of a school that does that. I think, again, also with AI, I think one of the most exciting use cases is the AI tutor concept where everyone has a different learning style, right? If you think way back to the dark ages of the 1970s, there was a popular uh, school of thought called neuro-linguistic programming. And, and one of the findings that they had was that we're all different, right? So some people are visual learners. So with a visual learner, showing them, you know, talking with them even. if To a visual person, if you say, can you see the big picture? They'll say yes. 
if you ask them, does that ring a bell? They'll kind of look at you, right? Because that's auditory. There's people who are auditory as well. And so conversely, if you say to them, can't you see the big picture? They can't. <laughs> they can hear the bell ring though. And, and so one of the things that's incredible about AI tutors is they can learn on the student that they're helping educate. And they begin to improve rapidly as they iterate with the user in terms of presenting the user things in their own very own communication style, right? So I think that we're going to see an absolute explosion and transformation of education, uh, given the the tools, for example, of AI, but just in methodologies as well, like synthesis school. Um, teach people how to think, you know, it's like, we have maxims for this, right? Give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Give a person, not to be uh, uh, gender specific about it, so give a human a fish, uh, you uh, feed them for a day. Teach them how to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. That's the same on the educational side, right? You one right answer probably not a right answer, right? It's basically the accumulated uh, belief system, sometimes right. Not saying it's always wrong because it is often right, right? The rule of thumb and heuristics, they work because of prior uh, instances of that particularly happening. But what you really want to do is teach people how to think, then let them go. Talk about your OSV fellowships. I think you've given out 12 yet. Uh, for those who don't know, Jim is giving individuals $100,000 grants to basically do their thing, smashing one of the barriers that stops so many people from pursuing the intersection between their talents and interests, which is monetary funding. Um, what's the motivation behind this? Perhaps tell us a bit about your fellows and what you look for in someone to invest $100,000 in. Sure. The motivation was, I, my thesis was that for most of human history, uh, a genius or incredibly creative person could be born, live and die without anyone, including themselves, knowing <laughs> that they were a genius or that they were a creative person, right? Geography determined destiny to a certain extent. You and I would never meet. We would never meet unless I happen to be where you were at a particular time in space time, right? And the likelihood of that was probably quite low. Well, as a knock-on effect of that, a second order effect was that, you know, even, even if I wanted to find all of the geniuses or innovative thinkers in the world, I didn't really have the tools to do it. I could go to the, you know, Ivy League universities here in the United States, or I could go to Oxbridge in, in the UK, or I could go to the uh, the best schools in India, maybe, right? But very arduous, very time intensive, all of those things. The online world changed that. It gave us a platform where we could not only see all of these brilliant ideas, but we could find and fund them as well. And so as part of O'Shaughnessy Ventures' thesis, it was, look, there's th really the first time in history that we can see really clever, creative people. And oftentimes, the circumstances, as you point out, are, you know, they've got to work for a living. They've got to pay the rent. They've got to whatever. 
And so we thought, well, why don't we launch a series of fellowships uh, where people are are doing uh, things that we find that will add to collect the collective good of humanity. Um, so our fellows are very disparate. Uh, we have uh, our first two fellows are will show you the distance we're willing to go. So our first fellow uh, is endeavoring to open source quantum computing. Um, and he's got a PhD in, in quantum uh, mechanics. Uh, he's, he's a genius. He's, his prior work is amazing, and he just needed the extra funding to continue what he was doing. Uh, very, very, um, some would say, esoteric goal. Uh, the second uh, was a couple um, that uh, Nat and Martha Sharp, who uh, have uh, five young kids and were dissatisfied with the educational options available to them. And so we funded their quest to find sort of the best way to teach to their kids. And they're going to be actually making a documentary about it um, and releasing that. And, and our vertical infinite films will probably release that. So what we're trying to do is highlight these very, from our view, interesting endeavors um, and then give the uh, people the, the financial wherewithal to pursue them. And oftentimes that is the thing that's missing, right? So when you can fund a, an idea that you want to see flourish, my idea is I'm compelled to do that, right? And so I'm sure we'll get quite a few wrong. In our application process, we say, what does success look like? What does failure look like? And uh, we we go into this knowing full well, as do the fellows, by the way, that, you know, this is not a sure thing, right? It's not a sure thing that um, our quantum physicist is going to be able to find an open source path to quantum computing. He knows that. And he wrote a very elegant uh, response to what does failure look like? Um, and so one of the things that we believe is that there is a huge number of people out there um, who in almost all of the rest of human history would have been undiscovered. And we get to not only discover them, but highlight them, fund them. And hopefully the results will be good for humanity going forward. That's kind of the spirit, if you will, of the fellowships. The, the original fellowships, I'm a bit of a nerd, and I was re-reading Francis Bacon's uh, utopian novel about Atlantis, in which they send out, that's why we have 12, by the way, because in this, they have 12 um, explorers who are sent out in the world by Atlantis, which wow. was this mythical place that was, uh, you know, a thousand years ahead of the rest of humanity. Um, and so um, I was like, yeah, that's, that seems like a really cool idea. And then my team was very graceful in telling me, uh, Jim, nerd alert. <laughs> you can't, you can't uh, use any of those antiquated terms. So we dropped it. But was, that was kind of the spirit of why we started the fellowships as well. That's amazing. I had Nat and Martha on the podcast and we talked a bit about Oh, cool. As well. so, uh, they're awesome. That's great. And looking forward to all the movies they create. But let's talk about media. <laughs> The internet is allowing for everything to get digitized 
decentralized and democratized. Of course, there are flaws in the system, but in general, everything seems to be going in that direction. You've popularized this term, great reshuffle. Um, can you give the listeners a description in light of media about what that means and what are some of its implications? Sure. So, so the great reshuffle is basically predicated on the idea that all of the old playbooks and models are collapsing. And one of the reasons why they are collapsing is many of them were designed for the classic bell curve, right? So the bell curve distribution, as we all know, has about 68% right in the middle. That's the sweet spot, so to speak. If you want to make a product, if you want to make a TV show, if you want to make a podcast under that model, under a normal distribution, you're probably going to be very intelligent to aim it at that 68%, right? So in in most prior eras of humanity, um, particularly under capitalism, um, every company wanted, that was their market. <laughs> they wanted that 68% in the middle. And, you know, you see it in memes, right? The mid-twit uh, meme, yeah. you know, it, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. over here, Jesus over here. There's some really funny ones. But it was actually very, very sensible if you were trying to run a company or um, do really anything, you really had to address that 68% in the middle. So back in the 1950s and 60s, the most popular, one of the most popular TV shows was I Love Lucy here in the United States. At one point, it had 68 million viewers. I mean, like, that's incredible. And so, so what happens is... When you're aiming everything at that 68% and you've got 68 million viewers watching that particular show, you homogenize thought and you homogenize a lot of what people are talking about, thinking about, et cetera. You can't help it. And, and so the thesis of the Great Reshuffle is that's no longer true. The internet has changed the distribution pattern dramatically. And so it's much more of a Mandelbrot uh, chaotic normal distribution pattern with a very peaky middle. So it's not 68% mm. anymore. I, you know, let's call it 20% with very long tails on either side. Those tails is what I'm interested in. The tails now that we have the platform of the internet, uh, Matt Clifford, uh, who is the founder of Entrepreneur First in the UK, and uh, we are an investor in his company, coined the term, the internet is the greatest variance amplifier in human history. And why is that cool? Why is that important? It makes being profitable in the tail possible, right? So in the days of I Love Lucy, you're not going to have a show like Game of Thrones, right? It's just not going to happen because it's going to appeal to a very, very small group uh, cohort of society. I think at its peak, Game of Thrones had 18 million viewers, right? So what happens is you get fragmentation in the collective consciousness, if you will, of humanity that was pretty easy to understand and ascertain when it was the normal distribution. Now, You've got all sorts of also opportunity in those tales. So I always use the example of fishing. I, I've been fishing. 
I've been, you know, fly fishing and I've been deep sea fishing and I've been fishing in a lake and on the ocean, but I'm not like, you know, I, I like, oh, I'm on vacation. Let's go fishing. Right. I'm, I have no particular passion around it, but guess what? There's a lot of people who do. And I still remember getting this idea, like I think it was 2017 or 18, a friend was pitching me on an app that was for a smartphone and it was a fishing app. And I'm kind of like looking at them for lunch and I'm like, uh, dude, like, no, thank you. I mean, <laughs> well, the joke was on me. Like it went on to do extraordinarily well. Why? Because there's a lot of people who are incredibly passionate about fishing. They want to show the fish they caught. They want to geolocate. Here's where I caught it. They want to have community back and forth about what are the best lures, about all of these things. Well, guess what? That applies to every kind of sub-modality. Uh, so some people are really into steampunk. Some people are really into EDM. Some people are really into, you know, 19th century philosophy. And it was very difficult to present uh, an interesting podcast, Substack, uh, YouTube channel to uh, interest those people, right? Not anymore. Now, what we have is the ability of people who are really good at generating content or uh, their particular take on a uh, thing. You can now have a Substack or a podcast that does very, very well in that much smaller cohort. And the the old idea of you know mass media, no, it, it, it's dying, and you can see they don't like that it's dying. They're very very upset yeah. that it's dying, and and so we will see all sorts of smaller hills that can be conquered. Um, and so if you, it's a, like if you're incredibly creative and you're particularly good at something, I think of my friend David Senra, right? He he awesome. runs. He he runs um, uh, a podcast where essentially what he does is read about founders and he reads everything and then he reads it again and then he writes it out. And then he essentially does a one hour, sometimes longer take on that particular founder and everything that he has learned. And he, his podcast is enormously successful, right? And it's really interesting and it's it's great and impossible under the old model. Under the old model, like he's not getting a show on TV on one of the three networks. He's not going to get a radio show either, right? Because they all want it to be able to uh, appeal to this very broad audience. So he's a great example of somebody who can, he, he's created an incredible business and career for himself doing what he loves. And I think that's the unlock that people can now do. Um, in terms of the creative side of media. You're also big on movies and uh, you uh, obviously OSV is uh, there's a whole sub part of movies and you obviously funding people who are creating movies as well. So maybe talk about a bit uh, on how you guess the future of movies and just the film industry might look like. Same sort of thesis in terms of why is Hollywood churning out Guardians of the Galaxy Edition 10? Because what they're hoping to do is appeal to the broadest audience as possible. 
Um, we have infinite films because many of my favorite movies are kind of what are called smaller movies um, and inspirational movies. Uh, I love documentaries as well. And we have a documentary coming out uh, next month. It's in the Toronto Film Festival. Can't talk too much about it because he wants to uh, keep it on the down low. Sure. Uh, and to be clear, we came in late uh, to help out on that particular documentary. But there's one we're making right now on Dr. David Roney, who is an incredibly inspirational guy. Um, and it's a good example of the type of movie that I felt wasn't being made anymore. Um, and so now that we have all of these tools that allow for us to make movies at vastly lower costs, at vastly lower um uh you know all in and and the idea also that we're not trying to have huge box office for these particular movies what we're trying to do is address a specific audience that we think will be very interested in that sound familiar right infinite media we're trying to go to specific audiences same thing here where we have the tools you can do really really well by addressing the needs of a much smaller audience but doing it in a beautiful and elegant way right so the other thing that we're making use of again is the all of the new tech and our willingness to give people who under the traditional guild system of hollywood wouldn't have a shot so we're about to go out and um uh pick the uh, personnel for david's uh documentary We'll we'll give the twenty four year old graduate of NYU film school a shot, uh, because we think that they are going to be able to do a hell of a job. Now we, we'll learn as we do this, right? And we'll probably make mistakes. I'm sure we'll make mistakes, and you know, mistakes are learning rich environments. And what we like to do is make novel mistakes, not not the same old mistake. But we'll we'll continue to learn from it as we make these particular films. Um, so again, now that we can, we must, so to speak. So now that we can make a movie about David um, and do so economically and give give uh, younger people, for example, or let's not be ageist about it. Maybe there's a 50 year old out there who decided, you know what, I, I hate my job. I'm going to go to film school and I'm going to, you know, see whether I can make movies. So the idea, though, is we want to also in all of our verticals, we want everything to be a win win game, meaning uh, so for the movie, um, everyone who works on that movie will own a piece of that movie. And so if we can successfully sell David's uh, documentary tentatively titled Born to Fit Out um, to one of the big streamers, everyone who the director, the screenwriters, the, you know, the camera people, everyone is going to benefit from that. And if we can't sell it, they're still going to benefit. Because if they want, I mean, they got the opportunity to be the director of a documentary when they were 23. How cool is that? And it also gets them a chit into if they want to be in the Screen Actors Guild or the Directors Guild or any of those, you have to have had prior work, right? It's kind of like chicken and egg. How do you get the prior work to you know, be able to make it if you're not in the guild? 
And so we'll be able to sort of disintermediate that by giving them the experience. And should they want to, you know, go that way and go out to Hollywood and make movies, God bless. That's fine. Uh, what we want to do is is give them the opportunity, give them the tools that they need to actually make something really, really good, um, and then hopefully profit from it, from our ability to either sell it to a streamer or put it on YouTube with a fee, et cetera. Um, and and it's, it's basically going to be a lot of experimentation. You'll see a lot of documentaries from us uh, in the beginning. Uh, because there's something I think I have some understanding about. We'll see. <laughs> uh, but certainly the people that we're going to hire uh, will have a much better domain knowledge than me. Uh, I have a, a friend who's a well-known director, and he and his wife were joking about whether I, when I was in asset management, and they were joking what I would be if I was in Hollywood. And 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 they both simultaneously and without almost any thought said you would be a producer, <laughs> and so that's kind of what I'm doing here, right? A producer yeah. puts all the people together, and um, you know is good at figuring out how that particular team is going to work. Um, so what we hope to achieve there is to make some inspiring stuff, to 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 do really cool things, and. Most importantly, to give these incredibly talented creatives who don't right now have access to those tools or that ability to make a major documentary or whatnot, give them the tools and the money to do that. So very excited about it. Um, ultimately, uh, we think that we will probably be mostly a AI movie company five years from now. But again, I believe very passionately in the what's called the senator model, man, woman plus machine, right? I think that, you know, five years from now, you're going to see a ton of AI generated movies. And honestly, I think 80% of them are going to suck because they won't have a human in the loop. We think that the great unlock here is with a human in the loop, a human creative with the ability to iterate with an AI. That's going to be incredibly powerful. Until, for example, let's say you had access to a, an AI that you could iterate with to make your podcast more the way you want it to be. Just think about it. You, what you're doing is you're putting your own ideas in. It's spitting back. Yeah, but did you think about this? And you're like, oh, I, di I didn't think about that. I'm going to incorporate that. Then you get to iterate, iterate, iterate until your podcast is suddenly doing things in a very different manner but it's all you it's all you iterating back and forth and saying and sort of being the curator there and saying i'm going to try this idea eh, maybe that what i was doing over here didn't work as well it's just going to give you so many options to get better and better and i think those are going to be the ai movies that are going to be very very appealing because they'll have a human creator in the loop uh, rather than just, you know, pure machine to uh, computer. Yeah, human ingenuity, right? Like AIs, they aren't creative. If they were, they'd be AGIs and they'd be people like us and we could trade with them. We could create more knowledge with them, create wealth with them. But uh, like uh, they, as we've seen, like the people who think AI is just another step, uh, sorry, AGI is just another step to 
uh, from AI, which is like just adding more computational power, uh, that's not going to work, right? They don't have the correct epistemology. They don't know how knowledge works, how knowledge is created. And um, yeah, I like how, you, so, so you're basically talking about automation and enables us to do more, right? More of what we're innately made to do, which is to think. And uh, that's what we've been doing ever since civilization started or since before, right? Fire, like somebody had an idea to do it. Otherwise, I love to think in like the way that hunter-gatherers, they had lesser resources than we do today, lesser natural resources. And people today obviously are all um, talking about how we're depleting all these natural resources and um, how we should be uh, constraining how much we're producing and all that. But what's limiting in that perspective is knowledge, right? And human creativity. Uh, because when we create more knowledge, we're able to turn like useless matter into resource, which like a rock was just a rock before we turned it into coal, right? So it's very interesting to think in that way and just see your optimism in kind of every field moving forward. Well, we didn't leave the stone age because we ran out of stones, right? We, we left the stone age because we added knowledge. And everything that you see in the world, unless you are happen to be somewhere in the Serengeti that has been untouched by humans, everything else you see came out of the minds of men and women. And the, the, the so-called Club of Rome, the Malthusian doctrine that we're running out of everything, we've got to cut the population. The fact that, you know, that, that there are still large organizations today advocating this boggles my mind because, you know, essentially Malthus uh, was famous for saying that if human population continued to grow at the rate it was growing, he said this hundreds of years ago. Uh, that we were all going to die of famine, right? What did Malthus overlook? Human ingenuity, right? And Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich is a classic doomer. And long ago, he made, uh, he wrote a book called The Population Bomb. Same argument, by the way. I mean, like, it blows my mind that people are like, yeah, hasn't that been proven wrong time and time and time and time again? right? This default to pessimism seems to be a kink because, you know, essentially we're driven by fear in many respects, right? Because fear is a useful signal. If there is a bush way, uh, going back and forth and you're on the Serengeti and you're a hunter-gatherer, guess what? We're the descendants of the guys that ran away <laughs> because the guy who went and found a tiger or a lion there got eaten, right? And so it's baked into our DNA to be cautious. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. If we can override it and understand that we everything comes out of our minds. Back to er Ehrlich, there's another guy by the name of Julian Simon who wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource, which was human ingenuity. He actually had a bet, a very famous bet back in the day with Ehrlich about 10 of the most rare minerals in the earth. At that time, Ehrlich was saying, well, of course, they're going to be much more expensive. I think it was 10 years uh, hence. And, and Simon was like, I'll take that bet. They're all going to be cheaper. Simon won. And because Simon was thinking about human ingenuity, 
Yeah. Whereas Ehrlich yeah. was thinking that knowledge was fixed mm -hmm. right there. I think that, I mean, that'd be a great podcast. Maybe think about that one. Like the, the, the fixed mindset is brittle and dies. The, the fluid mindset moves and is agile and lives. And like Lao Tzu was saying this in the Tao Te Ching centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And so it's not that we haven't had these kind of two things battling with each other for quite a long time, but sort of the default to, you know, I know everything there is to know. It seems like a real bad kink in, in human OS, but here we are. The good news is the, the genie's out of the bottle. And like the, those who embrace that fixed mindset uh, of limitation, you know, zero sum games, uh, negative sum games in certain uh, regards, they're going to wither and die. And the people who embrace the um, positive sum uh, games are going to thrive. And so that's another thing that we're kind of trying to illustrate here. Jim, I prompted this uh, towards the beginning of our conversation giving all the anti-aging and longevity research happening do you want to live forever huh. so that's a really interesting question do i want to live forever no i don't want to live forever um because you know i first off it it, it presumes a lot of things that we don't know for sure right mm -hmm. So people ask me, are you religious? Not particularly, but I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. Why am I an ag agnostic and not an atheist? Well, atheism requires, in my mind, as much certainty as the most fundamentally religious person, right? They're just certain about different things. I don't know. I think the universe is a lot stranger than we, in our very limited understanding, know. And I, how many dimensions are there? Is there a spirit? I don't know any of these things, right? And nor can I use any kind of methodology that's available to me today to empirically say, yeah, this thesis is right, right? So who knows? So would I like to live for a couple hundred years? Yeah, that'd be great. I think our, our lifespans uh, are tragically short in terms of everything that we can uh, potentially achieve. And so I'm, you know, I read a, a, a lot about the, the immortality uh, quest. Most people don't understand that that's been going on for like ever, <laughs> right? And, and, and so I think uh, I, I wanna leave myself open to the next adventure, even if the next adventure is I'm warm food, right? I'll never know. <laughs> if if there is no higher dimension or if there is no other thing uh you know okay uh, I, I i won't know that because i'll be the food for the worms but i i, I definitely think that extending lifespan as long as you can be useful as long as you can uh contribute um that's great and i think we're going to see discoveries and and innovations over the next 10 to 20 years that will boggle people's minds and i'm all for that um and i'm all for you know trying to also at the same time make sure that everybody has clean drinking water the 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 progress that we've made there like most people don't know about it 
yeah, just thinking about one thing, you know, um, dysentery is been millions of people who died from dysentery are no longer dying from dysentery because we figured out mostly how to correct the the problem. And as much as we can extend that through this research, yeah, I'm totally there. Um, and also, like, if I can get a shot or whatever that's going to make my lifespan double, yeah, for sure, I'll take that journey. I just think that for right now, I have not seen enough incredibly compelling evidence uh, that tells me that uh, immortality is, is something that can be achieved. Now, I've read everyone about it, and I know all about the singularity and all that kind of stuff, and it seems really cool to me. Um, and and I'm probably wrong. Uh, and maybe maybe youngsters like you are going to figure it out, and then you'll say, "Poor Jim." <laughs> you know, you'll be a thousand years old and you say, look at this. And you'll have it in a crystal somewhere and you'll be able to throw it up and say, look, God, what an idiot. <laughs> but so, so I'm not hostile. I'm not hostile to people doing the research. I love it. Let's, let's try to figure everything out. I'm, I'm just right now. Um, I'd be very content if instead of uh, popping off at 80, whatever the actuarial mm -hmm. table for me is, if I could add. 50 good years. Yeah. That's the other That's key, important. right? Because remember, I think it was um, Gulliver's Travels, right? He, he on, uh, on uh, Gulliver's Travels, he goes to a place where people are immortal, but they go senile. And the, the, that doesn't lead <laughs> to good things, right? So I think that if we can add good years in terms of our ability to think to innovate to add all in favor um and godspeed but uh i i, I doubt that those particular innovations will happen during my assigned life period hopefully it gets longer and longer <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh like live enough live long enough until you can live forever i don't know but I'm sure excited about what's next in longevity and like literally every other field, AI, AGI, the things we can do is literally limitless. And I want to thank you for your time and I really appreciate it. This was really fun. Any final thoughts you'd like to end with? I, I just want to commend you. I'm, I'm delighted to see young people like you with this, with this mind uh, set. And the more you can spread it, the better. Um, we, we need optimism about our future. And we, we fell into this, this thing. You know, I love science fiction, too. And, you know, early science fiction was incredibly optimistic for the most part. Um, and kind of the pinnacle of that was Star Trek, right? Um, which was already in reruns when I was a kid. <laughs> so we, we went into this jag of really hardcore dystopia. And, you know, you look at like the World's Fair, people were really optimistic about the future. And then suddenly everyone became incredibly pessimistic about the future. And I think that that's just so destructive. And so I'm doing everything I can to, to get people turned around. And by the way, being optimistic doesn't mean that you're not a realist, right? Mm -hmm. I anticipate there will be all kinds of problems 
from every innovation that we create. You can solve problems, but let's create, to, to echo Deutsch, let's create better problems. Let's create more thrilling things that we need to solve. And so uh, I love the fact that you're out here um, spreading the word. And the, the, the more people like you, the better. Appreciate it, Jim. Thank you.